we have a competition. Keep listening to the end of the podcast if you'd like to know how to win two tickets to see The Cagouls at the 2018 Edinburgh Fringe. Welcome to the first issue of the We Review podcast. This is a podcast for the We Review magazine. We are online at thewereview.com. Uh, I'm Johnny Ingram, your host. With me are... Hi, I'm Beth Blakemore. Um, I'm the theatre editor at the We Review, and I've been writing for the magazine since 2014. I'm Claire Wood. I've been writing for the We Review for about a year and a bit, and I mainly cover theatre. I'm Kevin White. I'm the comedy editor and the film editors for DVD and Blu-ray releases. I've been writing for the site since uh, June 2015. Uh, I'm Robert Peacock. I'm the managing editor of the We Review and also look after music. Uh, and I've been writing for the site for a long, long time since it used to be TV Bomb. I'm Kirsty McGrory. I'm a newbie at the Read Review. Uh, I've only been writing uh, for the Read Review for a couple of months and mainly about films. Alright, so the fringe is coming up. Here we go, going into it again. We've got shows that we review and shows that you want to see of your own accord. Does anybody have any clever strategies for how you go about planning your fringe? Well, my strategy's changed over the years since I started reviewing because it used to just be get a fringe app and find whatever was nearest to me at any one point and just go and see it. But now since I've had to actually plan ahead what I'm going to see, uh, it is this sort of horrendous rooms of spreadsheets and other <laughs> paraphernalia trying to work out, schedule everything. But I've never, never really come up with a good, good solution to, uh, to deal with it all. Well, yeah, this is the first year that I actually had to look at the brochure program properly in print to really look at everything within bids to come up with a list of things that we want our reviewers to, to go and see. But usually I'm quite actually a visual person and I rely on the uh, the adverts uh, and the posters around Edinburgh. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I try to avoid active planning consciously because sometimes just looking at that brochure, just seeing it, makes me stressed. <laughs> yeah. um, it's so quite try, intimidating. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I try to avoid um, the kind of formal situation of um, of reading the brochure too carefully. And the good thing about living in Edinburgh during the Fringe is that friends that live further away are suddenly very keen to visit you, and they've got an idea of what they what they want to see. So you can be quite passive about this and uh, take their recommendations. So I kind of actively try and remove myself from a, a planning process <laughs> for health reasons. <laughs> I, I really like spreadsheets. Like, I really, really like spreadsheets to a disturbing level. Mm. Uh, I'm a huge, massive geek, and I've been coming to the fringe for probably half my adult life. Uh, and so I genuinely have a little program that I've written that takes input of every single show in the comedy section of the fringe and will randomly generate 10 shows to us. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That is quite geeky. And, and <laughs> impressive. I've adapted that from the list of shows that I'm supposed to be reviewing for We Review as well. So the shows that I'm reviewing this year have been randomly generated as well. So is it like Amazon's If You Like This, You Like That? No, it hasn't. It, no, I'm not that good. No, no, no. <laughs> it has no heuristics in it. It, has, it just literally takes every single one of them and it has an equal chance of spitting out anything. So marketing officers are wasted on you. Absolutely. Well, their hard work means absolutely nothing yeah. to you. No point. 
Yeah, I'm immune. I'm immune to all marketing. Uh, but that, I mean, that's that's the, that's. I do also have then my favourite ones that I know I'm going to go and see anyway, even if they don't come up on the thing. Does oh. the venue have any influence on people? I like venues um, in unusual places. So last year, for example, there was a show in a container set outside Summerhall called Sales. Oh, yes. It was extremely <laughs> creepy and brilliant. But I liked site-specific shows. There was another that happened at Codebase, and they tried to use VR, and disastrously my performance uh, was halted midway through because the equipment all died, which was a bit of a shame for them. But I like seeing things in places that you don't expect to see shows. I think that adds mm. a little um, extra frisson to the experience. Well, Summer Hall are bringing another one back. I think it's called Flight, and it's set inside an aeroplane. We're very much a sort of living the experience piece of theatre. So. I like to support the stand and the monkey barrel, like the, the, yeah, the venues that are here. <laughs> all year round, um, and it's usually stuffed full of people that I like to go and see anyway. Monkey Barrel in particular this year has got a really Monkey good lineup. Monkey Barrel this year is absolutely It's superb. Um, as far as planning, I like a spreadsheet as well. I started planning in March, but a bit more <laughs> painstakingly, so every March show that was coming in, I was keeping it updated, so my spreadsheet had about 800 shows on it before the actual uh, magazine was launched, uh, the brochure was launched. Again, I try and juggle complete Sort of random punts, people who have been planning to see for the last couple of years and never got round to it, uh, especially people that have contacted me uh, for the last few years and have not got round to seeing or try and make an effort to go and see them this year. Well, first year I was uh, reviewing a completely sort of misjudged how long it would take me to get out of a venue, how much my um, velocity along the Cowgate was going to be hindered <laughs> by the sheer volume of people there. So I'd given myself 15 minutes to get from a packed room in the Pleasance to Underbelly Cowgate, and that's about yeah. half a mile. Or so. yeah. Just yeah. barreling yeah. along, screaming at people to get out my way. <laughs> Made it as well, but um, yeah, lesson learned. I do love the chaos of the fringe, though, being a bit spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm the... Well, I'm... I don't know if I'm the best or worst person going down the, the Royal Mile because I will take every single flyer and say, do I want to go and see this now? Yeah. I really like the change of timetable as well. There's a kind of atmosphere. And mm. It's not just that the pubs are open later, but that does help. <laughs> so one of the things that we wanted to talk about in this episode is what qualifications do you actually need to have to be able to review a specific thing? Or perhaps more precisely, who is entitled to review certain things that you're going to see, whether that's something that is targeted at a specific audience that you don't necessarily fit into, uh, or whether it's something that needs a specific knowledge set that you as a reviewer don't necessarily have. What are people's thoughts on that? I think sometimes, um, thinking more about films, but there are franchises and things like Star Wars and the Marvel franchises where people can feel so invested in that franchise. They're almost too much the audience yes. for it that any kind of changes can be very upsetting to them and their idea of what is a pure version of that franchise. Uh, and that can lead to kind of negative reactions on the part of that person rather than, you know, just be open to a new idea. I suppose that's where the tension lies, doesn't it? Because you have to know something to a decent level to be able to review it at all. You have mm-hmm. to have some engagement in the subject matter, but then you start, like, say, if you get too close to it, you're almost not able to see it objectively. Um, and there is a conflict there. Yeah. Particularly yeah. drug themes, you know, mm-hmm. like dr- uh, drug abuse or rape or domestic violence. Like sometimes you really do have to question, like, uh, quest- question yourself as to whether or not you are capable of distancing yourself. 
if you do have any sort of degree of experience with those things without letting your own experiences overtake the interpretation on stage, particularly mm-hmm. in theatre. You thought that like, a really good, successful performance would overcome those things as well. That would also overcome audience norms, you know, so even if you're not necessarily normally a fan of something, if something yeah. is very successful, you'd hope that um, it would appeal to different audiences as well. Do you think sometimes that those type of shows that's dealing with a sort of difficult or challenging topic are more likely to be critically lauded because of what they're dealing with rather than how actually good they may or may not be. Like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Yes, <laughs> exactly like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Yes. I always say try and review the show, not the politics. Yes. But that doesn't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. I'd say it does happen on the review. Reading some publications, some reviews, you think you've liked this because of what he's trying to say and not what actually you've seen. Yeah. That's still liking it, though. That's still, that's still, an, that's still a, a response that an audience member could have, so it's not necessarily completely irrelevant. It's it's true, but if the same... Well, take Brexit, for instance. Mm-hmm. If you're, uh, you've seen something that's uh, anti-Brexit mm-hmm. and you're very, a fierce Remainer, then uh, you're giving it five stars because he's saying what you want him to say. But there's going to be good shows about Brexit and there's going to be bad shows about Brexit. You've still got to be able to... Well, there certainly aren't this year's yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've still got to be able to judge it on some sort of spectrum and not just because you like what it's trying to say. I, I think there's a little bit of that behind the decision last year to have two winning shows. Because as good as Nanette is... Is it successful as a comedy show? Yes, oh, it's hilarious. Well, this, is not, this is almost a separate debate in itself. It challenges because, the yeah. form. That's what I loved about it, is the way that she challenges the yeah. form. And actually, I know that this is quite a good example of what I was talking about before as well, because I know people who don't like that kind of stand up were kind of a bit eye rolling for the first half and then realised in the second half when she confronted and addressed what she'd been doing in the first half that that's why they don't like it. That they feel uncomfortable for the same reasons that she feels uncomfortable for like, apologising yeah. for herself all the time. And that ability to challenge the medium that you're working in in a way that's entertaining uh, and thought-provoking, uh, I think, yeah, she, I think she deserves it. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great, but to, uh, there was not a single laugh. She just abandoned laughs completely for, the, uh, no, for like, the last 20 minutes. There's certainly, I think it's a legitimate question to ask. Is you know does that actually succeed as stand up? I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it does, but I can see why there's all this debate about it because it does. You just you get what seems ostensibly to be a fairly down the line sandwich uh, for the first wee while of it, and you know the laughs are coming and you can punctuate them fairly regular, and you can see it scripted to get laugh here, you know, and, and pull back and reveal here, and it all works. And then halfway through, the whole thing just turns on its head. And, I've been finding it fascinating reading all the debates about it. Mm. Um, I'm pretty certain I know where I'm coming down on it. That, that yeah, it is still stand up and it's absolutely valid. But I, at the same time, I do understand the questions that have been asked. You know. But I don't think it would have won purely on the strength of the comedy. And I think it's interesting to compare with Richard Gandhi in before as well. Which again, he was not laughs are plenty. I mean, there were laughs, but again, it was a whole different level of. I, I think that's another reason why they'd hedged their bets a little bit, uh, because again, the winner the year before had been uh, Richard Gadd dealing with abuse and that kind of thing. So I wonder if they thought, 
that's that's two years on the trot. We'd be giving it to like an issue based. I think you're right. I think there's a tendency to automatically ascribe value to inverted commas worthy shows. And and is that because again is that coming back to the original thing? Do we does the reviewer go actually? I maybe don't know enough about this particular subject. I'm maybe not qualified. So henceforth, I can't. I don't feel qualified to critique it properly. But back to the original debate, I suppose, I fear that from a reviewer's point of view, that often leads people to over-award, to overstar things out of incomprehension. I think I've because they're not guilty. wholly sure of the context. And so it's easier to say that's really interesting and intelligent and shedding brand new lights on a topic I know nothing about, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and it's, um, I, I suppose that does come back to the question of what qualifications you need to review a show how much do you need to know about the subject matter to be able to legitimately offer an yeah. opinion that is authoritative on the subject I, I still feel like a fraud <laughs> got, got sitting there and judging somebody's comedy that they've spent a year but I think after having done it for a few years now I feel like I'm in a position where I can go I know enough about comedy and the structure of it yeah. to go that's not working that's working that's a digression too far or but kind of who are we as well to say you're enjoying this, so you're leaving the show in tears, and you felt you feel like you've had this transformative experience, and you've got a new insight, but you're not enjoying it in the right way. Yeah, you've got, you've got to enjoy it the way that I think you should enjoy this kind of show. That's another. Area. But as a reviewer, is it just about the enjoyment? Because you're also supposed to be critiquing mm-hmm. the structure and the form and, and that. And how about this is an open question to everyone. We gave the net five stars. Not the reviewer who did it in there, but how would any of us felt going in there if we hadn't liked it or hadn't liked it for not not liked it if we had critiques of it genuine things that we thought were structurally not good about it? How would we ever, especially the men amongst us, gone in there and said actually no, I didn't mean that. I didn't like this aspect. That's the three star review. Just, your hands are tied if you feel if you criticise in any way. It feels like you're criticising. Experience, yes. I don't think our hands are tied though, because you've got the platform to say whatever you want. Yeah. But, but had, had we done that, yeah, yeah, yeah. we would have probably been ripped to shreds. So but ironically, that, that's part of what she's saying in the show. You know, I think that that's one of the things that she sort of says that she's no longer going to be doing is to, to effectively sort of uh, sacrifice her own experiences for the sake of cheap laughs and massively reducing what she's saying in the show there, but you know, the, that. This intrinsic link between the reality of the, the experiences that the jokes are based on and the value or otherwise of the jokes themselves. For us, if we had done that, you know, let's say we, we reviewed it for whatever reason we'd give a one star to this slating. I don't say how we possibly could have done, but you know, let's say for the sake of argument that we had, then I would like to think that we would have had good reasons for doing so, that we'd be able to defend that. You know, and if, yeah. if it is just that, you know, Structurally, comedically, it fundamentally didn't work, and here are the reasons why, you know, and here's why this joke setup didn't work at all, and here's why the structure just broke down halfway through. And I would like to think we'd be able to come back and say, you know, these are our reasons for it, and if you can do that, then I think that's, that's mm. legit. I, I think we proved last year as well that sometimes you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because yeah. <laughs> um, with that, <laughs> that blogger last year that um, accused us of being misogynists, but never mind. Yeah, but as long as you justify your reasons for critiquing something, like if you give it four stars rather than five, as long as you say why, then it's okay. 
there are certain publications who will give a five-star review or a one-star review, and I feel they do not give enough justification. They don't give any reason. It's, I think we're going to see it a lot within theatre with the Me Too movement. I think it'll be interesting how many people are hesitant to actually criticise a piece of theatre, knowing how fragile a topic it is. And I don't think it's going to be exclusively men who, who are going to find that a difficult subject, but women as well. To what point you say, actually, no, you're sort of almost taking advantage of such a hot topic then yeah. just to get sales and just to get people in the door and then produce a subs- pass, mm. like, substantive piece of work. I think that's an important point that people need to be called on as well, like the kind of cynical appropriation of an issue that's really just self-promotion. You see that in a lot of different places. And seeing press releases come in, like you have no idea the number of press releases we get, but you see the same issues come again, and Me Too has come up with mm. Me Too, Brexit, Trump, and yeah. they're coming <laughs> all the time. And every time this is an important issue we need to discuss, but inevitably some of those are going to be good shows and some of them are not mm-hmm. going to be good shows. I, I've, got, I've got public on Twitter and said, I'm actually quite nervous about this fringe because I just sense that there's people out there who are looking to, to pick up on things mm-hmm. and imply, imply you've got biases that you don't have and looking to cri- criticise reviewers for the, what they do. So I'm actually quite scared. I, mean, I would be scared. I haven't pre- previously, but I, I would be not scared. Anxious about going and reviewing the children's about me too. I've been in shows before and thought this isn't the best of shows, and then thought this is going to be a really hard one to review because it is, you know. But in terms of theatre, that sort of brings the question of when are you criticising like a character or like a characterisation or the person on stage? Well, yeah, you're talking about uh, Nicole Hoffman. Yes, I didn't know her last name, that's why I was So, for those who don't know, this is a, a thing that came up recently where um, the actor Michael Hoffman was uh, reviewed as part of a, a wide review of the play that she was in, Brandon Whiskey and Bodie, uh, and the reviewer described her, or possibly the character she was playing as, uh, what was it, a little fat girl? Fat little girl. A fat little girl. Picks on yeah. yeah. She objected strenuously to this, and uh, uh, it's got quite a lot of traction. Uh, on social media and things of that nature. So yes, the question is, you know, is that in any way at any point valid to call an actor a fat little girl? I think it needs to be pointed out that she said that he'd also reviewed her before mm-hmm. and yeah. again referred to her as a fat girl, not making any reference to the way she actually portrayed the character, her characterization. Right. It seemed to be that once again he'd focused purely on her weight and how he felt that that was her character and that was that. And I think that's a big problem, actually, Like especially when it does come to actors or characters who are potentially overweight. There seems to be such a focus on that and very little about themselves. And, you know, characterization the way you assume a character, can actually have nothing to do with your size. Like, I mm-hmm. saw um, a, a show called Overshadowed about a um, girl with anorexia. And the girl, the actual actress herself, wasn't particularly skinny. She hadn't done what, you know, Jared Leto did in... Dallas Buyers Club, where she had lost an incredible amount of weight, but it was her characterization, the way she moved her body, the way she looked so fragile, that's what portrayed the anorexia, not the fact that she had a small body. So why can't it be the other way around? Um, for yeah. him, he was just focusing on her weight and nothing to do with how that character was portrayed. She says that a lot in the article that she wrote um, about that, about how the, the amount of effort that she'd gone to build this character. It involved studying the Spanish Civil War, and she talks about using her physicality as well, but her weight really isn't relevant uh, to that part or the, the play at all. I wondered if the reviewer 
was mistaken and was actually confusing her part with a different part in the book in the film. So there's a, there's actually a character. She played Joyce Emily Hammond, uh, whose weight is irrelevant. There is a character in, in the book in the film who, in the film, actually replaces the part that she's playing, who whose weight is kind of important to her social interactions. Um, and she is picked on for being overweight. And that's, I mean, the issue there is on the world that's been created by Jean Brodie, and that's part of the creation of, of her character as a sort of, you know, as a fascist, essentially. <laughs> so my impression, the way that he described that character, it, it was a fitting description of someone she wasn't playing, a different character. Yeah, yeah and I suppose um, a, a criticism of that character, or the actor playing that character, it may be relevant then right. to mention that actor's mm-hmm. weight. Possibly not, I don't know, but that's a circumstance in which perhaps it would be. But yeah, I mean, I think this one is just, it, it really seems to me that there's, there was very little actual concrete objective criticism there. And I guess some of it is to do with profile and who's an easy target and who isn't awfully, isn't it? I saw Richard Griffiths years ago in Equus down in London and Richard Griffiths isn't a slender man um, and he was the psychologist and he was marvellous. It was a completely wonderful performance and none of the reviews wrote a note about the shape of him. His um, his commentary, <coughs> the commentary was all about his performance, reasonably so. The, the size of the man was utterly irrelevant to the way that he played the part. So I wonder if there's a little bit of her being an easy target. Well, sadly, I think it is true that uh, you know, it's much more socially permissive to be a fat man than a fat woman. Yeah. But I think, um, I mean, there's obviously tropes within theatre and film and everything where you have these quite simplistic, you know, he's the funny one, yeah. she's the noisy one, he, he's the fat one, whatever. Stock and, characters. Yeah, stock characters. <laughs> and at some point, I think uh, the reviewer in question is certainly in, in his own head probably thought he was just referring to one of these stock characters and the problem was that, as you just said, it wasn't relevant to this particular part. That, that, thing, that, that is the, the number of the issue. Almost as if fact is a character trait. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's obviously misread the thing. It's where the dividing line is once, once you get into like, how much of the physicality of the person why have they cast this person in this particular role and how you judge that as a reviewer. For, for example, so I went to a comedy show a few years ago and <clears throat> it was a female comic and she was, a lot of the comedy was based on sort of her own naivety and uh, inexperience and, and that kind of thing. And I went to see it and the way she was dressed, so she had a red headband and she had a sort of a sweatshirt which had a sort of, it was either a kitten or a puppy print on it and a sort of a short town skirt, like a school skirt. And she was doing this comedy, and I went to see with a female friend of mine, and we came out afterwards and said, what do we think of that? And both commented on the fact that what she was wearing did make her seem a lot younger than she probably was. And given that her comedy was based on sort of her naivety and experience, were we to read into that that you know, this, this was her shtick that she was trying to portray on stage? And <clears throat> we both agreed that that was how she came across I both agreed that me as a male reviewer could not in any way refer to this in the in the review, so I didn't. But comedians do that all the time. If you if you like Michael McIntyre turns up in a suit, he's portraying a certain type of thing. Lee Nelson turns up in a baseball cap and you know, that's how his character. As a reviewer, how do you judge how someone looks on stage and whether that is meant to be relevant to performance or not? You're talking about clothes, mm. and this guy was yeah. talking about her weight, which you know isn't always something you can't problem. change. Yeah. yeah, she's chosen to wear that outfit, and whether or not that is to do with the 
the character she's portraying on stage, that's a different matter to the fact that this was a woman's weight. She was probably cast for her acting talent rather than her stature. And that was the thing that man chose to focus on. Yeah. And was that the only reference he'd made to her in the, the review? Yeah, it was quite a sort of, there was two lines on it. Yeah, it's pretty much. But, yeah. but there are, there are going to be instances when a casting director's going to choose someone. How do you know whether, whether the ca- casting director's chosen that person for how they look, whether size-wise or... Like, if we're looking at something like Hairspray, for instance, and the character in Hairspray is going to have to look a certain... Yeah. Well, then well, that's, you that, know that. Yeah, that becomes clear within like the plot. It's like, it's if, you know, if it's referenced to you know the fact that maybe she has a weight issue, then you can talk about it, like Fat Friends musical. They mm. have a weight issue that they're discussing. So, but in this one, it suggested that there was her weight was irrelevant, and yet that's what he focused on. Yeah, so context so it, is everything. But, yeah, but that's when it's so it's, when it's explicit, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's going to be implicit, and how do you judge that as a reviewer? Because I wouldn't take an issue with you mentioning the fact that she was dressed quite childishly as a man at all. I think if I'd done that, I think people would have commented. I think people would have said, "Oh, it's a, it's a male reviewer judging a female." You, you know, you're, you're what just trying to read. Are you the, making there? Like, that, well, looks, if that said, like a young girl, that's not a. That doesn't feed into any kind of. Ish, like problem in the world, I don't think. Because it could be seen as patronising or belittling. Okay. Or Maybe that, if, she, if, if, she, if she was more dressed like Britney Spears and like... If it was sexualised in some way. Oh yeah, yeah if, 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 if it had been overt, yeah. but it could have just been what she chosen to wear that day, so I didn't want to feel like I could make a judgement on it. But at the same time, that, that's always at the mm. back of my head when I'm going into a review. It's like... If someone calling you, calling you out if you, they saw a problem, how bad is that really? Well, if we go back to the misogyny thing that problem that we had last year is that there are people out there who are looking for problems and uh, with social media the way it is <clears throat> we don't want to run into a situation that this particular reviewer who reviewed Nicola Copper, we would ne- hopefully we'd never get into that situation mm-hmm. but the climate the way things are at the moment you can't be certain that's not going to happen someone's mm-hmm. going to take something out of context and it's going to blow up into something because when we try to justify it somebody else came in and accused us of mansplaining yeah, uh, which I, <laughs> and it was the completely wrong use of what mansplaining actually is, and so oh. I was tempted to go. Well, I don't think. <laughs> you, well, actually, I think you've misused mansplaining. But um, was it a man or a woman? It was a woman. So oh, I thought, right. let discretion be the best part of valor on that one. I thought. Mm. I think. Yeah. I think equally it'll be interesting as a woman yeah. reviewing shows about Me Too on the grounds that you may have all sympathy with the subject matter, you may have no sympathy at all with the way in which the subject matter is being presented, and yet it will be difficult to write a completely scathing review about a piece written about an enormous social injustice. So I think that will make for an interesting fringe too. Yeah, I saw a play recently at the Lyceum Predators, and within that they had this sort of reference to Me Too with these girl guys who kept appearing. It was just so unnecessary for both me and for the person who was reviewing the show as well. But even when I was editing the review, I did feel a bit anxious saying, oh, you know, he's sort of, the way it's been phrased potentially suggests that we're already tired of this we uh, this Me Too movement. But it was just, as we were talking before, it was, it was just gratuitous. It was just there to be able to say, oh, and it's, you know, 21st century, it's up to date with its addressing of this issue. And so... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if any, any of us would be called angry fem- feminists, for example, if we, you know, take real issue with, uh. I very much hope that at some point I'll be 
wants to be called an angry feminist. <laughs> well, that, that was the irony of last year because I got accused of uh, man-hating as well. So as well. At the same time as being accused We've of... We've alluded to this a few times. We should perhaps just explain yeah. very briefly what we're talking about and what happened last year. There was a, a, a blogger who wasn't at the Fringe, but she'd heard lots of um, controversy at the Fringe female comedians complaining that they, they didn't think they were getting reviewed accurately and so she took it upon herself to go through all the main fringe publications and try and find out if there was any bias and I went through and worked out how many stars each of the publications had given female comics and whether there was any bias um, so she went and did this her calculations said that we'd given too many five star reviews to male comedians in relation to female comedians, she found that Scotsman had done the same, um, she found that, I think it was Metro, or maybe the Skinny was the other way around. Um, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, but she'd gone through, and overall, she'd found there was no bias, um, but rather than conclude on that, that on the whole thing, reviews were very even, she'd selected the things that she found that suggested there was a bias, and then on the basis of that, put the headline that misogyny is right from all fringe views. The, uh, the issue I I had with it was she hadn't used all the full stats. She did, she'd done it halfway through the fringe. She hadn't used all the reviews that we'd done. She'd been very selective. She was just looking at stand-up comedians. And we, for instance, Kevin's given five stars to Pamela DeMont, who's a character comedian. For some reason, she didn't think that counted. It, um, it was because, for some reason, that was in under books. In the, uh, yeah, in the yeah. fringe guide, I, I, I rebutted the comments. I it, it blew up into you know those articles in Chortle and the Guardian and uh, on the fringe forums and things like that, suggesting that uh, there was a misogynist bias. And again, um, yeah, and there was confirmation bias a lot, and a lot of people automatically went, "Oh yes, you go, girl." That's yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's this cool again. Uh, I've, I've seen it since. I've, I've I've seen it quoted that that work quoted in. Other pieces saying you know there, there's a problem uh, you know, in, in the arts in general, and this is an example of what the problem is. Even though the as, as I saw it, it did seem that overall as, as a whole, and she didn't even come. She wasn't even here. Yeah, she wasn't <laughs> and I know, I, I know she said it was down to agoraphobia, but that's like criticizing crafts after you've not turned <laughs> up because you're allergic to fur. Um, <laughs> because I mean, I reviewed a female comedian last year who got a lot of. I think five star reviews, and for me it was a three star, and I felt almost wrong for giving it to her. But I went, actually no, I don't feel entitled to give you five stars because you're a female comedian that people are giving you a great buzz about. Because for me, your show wasn't funny, yeah. and there were a lot of problems with it. And so I don't. Know. And the worst thing was after the frigid face, after all this happened, someone sent in the review, uh, a late review that they'd forgotten it's all this something and they hadn't. And Desiree Burke and given a five stars, and I thought, I got together a week ago, and then we had not had this problem. That was, that was a fully deserved yeah, five yeah. stars yeah, for, yeah. for that show. Yeah. And this but, is a call to all re- we review reviewers to please hand in your reviews yeah. online. <laughs> it helps our statistical <laughs> Her show's called Chiff oh, Chaff. God, I love her so much. Me too. Oh. Yeah. But I saw her for the first time actually last year sw- um, at Swan. Swan yeah, yeah. And it was like the perfect combination of absurdism with a kind of actually a political stance that I agree with as well. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got a hug off her at the Comedy Awards last year, oh, wow. and she literally had to bend down about two feet. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just for pure enjoyment, uh, we're, we're organising a night out to go and see Frank Sinatra, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Hitler impersonator. So, uh, just for pure fun, that, if you can call Hitler fun. Uh, so, I'm looking forward to that. The other one I'm looking forward to is um, the theatre piece called um, And Before I Forget I Love You, I Love You which he's done by Pippleton, and he's, he's a very personal piece that he's done um, about someone with Alzheimer's. He's played someone with Alzheimer's, and he's based it on his experience looking after his mother. So we've got an interview with him. We've got an interview with him on the site and in our new We Short magazine, um, so you can read it there. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Alice Fraser. I have a feel um, she's show's called Ethos. She's doing a sort of state of humanity address to a robot that she has on stage with her. If it lands, I think it could be an awards contender. Uh, second one uh, I've seen a, uh, an early draft of is uh, Kimmy Pritchard McLean's Victim Complex. It's looking very good. Even at the early stage, I saw it. Uh, so I expect it to be something quite special. I'm excited about a theatre piece called Let's Inherit the Earth by a company called Dogstar, who are pretty local, and it's a punk comedy. Um, I can't even imagine what this is going to sound like, but it's taking on climate change, and I'm really interested in the fact that I don't think theatre's really cracked what we do about talking about climate change on stage yet, and I'm really hopeful this will be the answer. Well, I did see a very good show last year called Me and My Bee, which is about saving the bees and, you know, the importance of realising that global warming is happening. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing that now. In terms of reviewing, I'm excited to see Class at the Traverse. Um, speaking with Ola about it, it does sound amazing, both politically and as a piece of like comedy as well. Um, but for pure fun and a break from my dissertation, uh, Shitface Shakespeare Hamlet is going to be the one for me. <laughs> I think be this year... It's Luke McQueen, uh, I've seen his shows every year for the past few years, but they've just got better and better. Um, last year's show was a little bit, it wasn't quite as risk-taking as I would otherwise prefer from him, some people have once been a bit more so, but I suspect that this year he'll have gone back to his roots uh, and be properly confrontational and beating up people in the crowd and things like that. Um, so I'll get slightly drunk if I see that and I will not sit on the front row. I've made that mistake in previous years. Now, competition time. You can win two tickets to see the Cagouls, who are one of our favourite acts. All you need to do is to find yourself a copy of the We Short magazine, which is dotted all around Edinburgh, and tweet us a picture of you holding the magazine. Our Twitter handle is at the We Review. We'll draw the winning entry out of a virtual hat, and the closing date for that is the 15th of August, 2018. Thanks for listening to this first episode of the We Podcast. Apologies for the slightly questionable audio quality at points. We'll try to improve on that for the next episode. In the meantime, you can find us online at thewereview.com. And if you're in Edinburgh for the Fringe this year, keep an eye out for our first ever actual printed Hold It In Your Hand magazine. It's called The Wee Short. It's free, and we've made it in conjunction with Shortcom. You should be able to find it at all the major Fringe venues. Look out for a picture of the marvellous Jo Colfield. She's our cover star for this first issue. The Wee Podcast is a production of The Wee Review. This episode was recorded in July 2018. The presenter was Jodie Ingram, and the participants were Robert Peacock, Claire Wood, Kevin White, Beth Blakemore and Kirsty McGrory. It was edited by Johnny Ingram, and the music was by Valentin Sosnitsky.